Welcome back to the Go Dig a Hole podcast. Today's episode is very different from the usual format. When I was back in Kentucky over the holidays, I got the chance to take my soon-to-be father-in-law and one of my best friends on a very special tour of the Buffalo Trace Bourbon Distillery. I had taken the normal distillery tour tons of times, and in my opinion, it's one of the best in bourbon country. But what made this tour different was our guide. Nicholas Laraquente. Nick works with the Kentucky State Historic Preservation Office, or SHPO, and reviews most of the archaeological work that gets done in Kentucky. He took us on a tour of an archaeological site at the Buffalo Trace Distillery that he calls the Bourbon Pompeii site. So, in this episode, you're going to hear a lot of the sounds of the distillery, and that's a lot of heavy machinery. Uh, it was super challenging to get clean audio recordings here, but I think the result is still worth sharing. So use your imagination and try to follow us along on this tour of Bourbon Pompeii. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of the Go Dig a Hole podcast. I'm here with Nick Laraquente at the Buffalo Trace Distillery. And uh, Nick, give us a little background on what you do. Uh, you're with the Kentucky Shippo, and you work all over the state. And uh, tell us what you do with them and what led you to Buffalo Trace. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I guess I lead uh, two lives. I have my Kentucky Shippo job where I'm just the 106 reviewer and manager of the site protection section, and I'm all over the state in all 106 projects and doing things like organizing the state archaeology conference, things like that. And then um, when I'm not doing that, I put on my other hat as the uh, bourbon archaeologist, and it's my, my personal research project. I started it while I was still pursuing a PhD, which I kind of tabled the PhD project, but I still do this research. And I've worked now on um, maybe nine different distilleries. I run a um, volunteer community archaeology project through the uh, Jack Jewett House in Woodford County, and we focus just on looking at these early distillery sites, so farm distilleries, moonshine sites, things like that. And then um, Buffalo Trace I got involved in a few years ago because I had done a volunteer project for them when I was still a student, and then they ran into old stuff, they said, when they were doing this renovation <laughs> project. And I was like, oh, okay, old stuff, let's go take a look. And it turned into what we call the Bourbon Pompeii today, and a very cool kind of open-air archaeology museum, I suppose. So um, I'd love eventually just to do bourbon archaeology full-time, but we'll see. Maybe yeah. someday. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, so... As far as uh, if somebody wants to reach out and uh, learn more about what you do or get in touch with you, what's the best way for people to find you? Um, probably you can get me on Twitter at Archaeologist, and I'm usually pretty responsive there. Or if you uh, Google Bourbon Archaeology, you could find my email address easy enough. Yeah. Um, as opposed to your website, it's just first name, period, last name at Gmail. Okay. So, and yeah. you've also got a Facebook page for Bourbon Archaeology? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. So um, even though there it's a kind of hit or miss, I'm I'm bad at Facebook, much better at Twitter. Yeah. So, yeah. Nice. Yeah. You also snagged the uh, most coveted. Oh yeah. Name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I was procrastinating during my master's work, and I read about it on South by Southwest. There was like this new thing called Twitter, and I was like, I'll just get on there, and then it turned into what it is today. So That's yeah. Awesome. <laughs> a little lucky. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for taking the time to show us around. It yeah, is, definitely. Awesome. 
Yeah. So this, this is the OFC building, or Bourbon Pompeii as we affectionately call it. And um, what you're looking at up until last year was all covered by plain concrete floor. Uh, it was decommissioned by Shinley Distillers in the 1950s or so. They ripped anything of value out of these because these were all lined in copper when it was in use. They ripped all that out, recycled and sold it, and then uh, just poured a concrete floor over all of it. And this was just used as uh, storage space. Uh, basketball hoop was in here, random stuff was in here. And that wall, that far wall there, was starting to fail toward the river. And so they wanted to renovate the space into like a place you could hold like weddings and cocktail receptions, that sort of thing, and rent it out and get some income. And when they started ripping up the floor over there where the catwalks are, they started running into the foundations, that drop tub over there, that trough support over there. And that's when they called me and they're like, we run into something old here. What, what do you think it is? And so they gave me um, like a weekend or so down there in the pit like you couldn't see any of these vats in front of us here um and i was looking at the soil profiles so all the profiles were like eight feet high of soil you can see like flood deposit distillery operation with some random artifacts in there another big flood deposit more stuff underneath it it's kind of the stuff that archaeologists really like to see right that yeah. intact deposit and i was explaining that to them totally geeking out over the dirt and I offhandedly mentioned um, these brick walls here are the fermenting vats. You can see them on the Sanborn maps. And uh, one of the distillery people were like, wait a minute, you mean those vats are underground? Like if we rip up the rest of this floor, those vats will be right there? That, that was concrete poured on the Yeah, there was just concrete. But yeah. they, and these were empty, empty shells like they are now? They were, were full they? of stuff. Okay. Like what happened was um, these, the walls of the vats came up another few feet. They're made of brick. And then uh, there was a kind of a superstructure to hold the copper sheeting on them. And so they ripped out the sheeting they could, they collapsed the brick walls in, they got other random garbage from around the site, put that in there, enough to fill it up to where you could okay. pour the concrete on okay. top, right? Okay. But after the concrete cured, everything settled because it was wet, right? So when we, we started over there, we cut um, stuff away with the concrete saw, the, the little squares just dropped down into darkness. And everybody's like, so do you want to go down there? <laughs> you know? So we ended up ripping away the rest of this. And um, all of it was just full of, like, really loosely packed stuff. And as we went through it all, it was these artifacts back here. So uh, inside the vats is where we're finding these uh, bits of copper sheeting and whatnot. And so you can actually see, like, with this piece here, what they're doing is um, trying to salvage it. Um, this is cut marks from where somebody's just hacking away at it, trying to rip it away. You can see the nail marks here where it was stuck to another larger piece of sheeting. And then this piece of wood sat right up on top of the wall. There's a little channel here where a bolt would have gone in, gone five feet into the brick this way, right? And the whole thing sits on top of that brick wall with that sheeting draping down, covering about 14,000 gallons of that. So we found this, and we found a few of the... Uh, actual bolts that hold this in place and lots and lots of brick inside that but that was about it artifact wise was this and there's a few other pieces that aren't on exhibit but uh for the amount of dirt that we moved there weren't a lot of artifacts it was lots of lots of brick lots of stone oh this is all reclaimed all of that brick that was down in there all of that came from in there but wow. um 
Yeah, there wasn't a lot of like actual artifacts, which made this possible to do with like me as the only archaeologist, and then a ton of construction people that were here for about a year and a half, moving all that dirt out. And I would come and check like once, twice a day, be like, "All right, where are we at now? What types of things are we finding?" You know, we got to one point where you can't get heavy equipment down in there, so they had a bucket brigade filling up just five-gallon buckets of this stuff and taking it out to a construction dumpster up here. So it was a massive undertaking. But, uh, yeah. That's crazy. Now, did they have to pay for, did, did Buffalo Trace pay for it? Or is there... Yeah, this is all Buffalo, Buffalo Trace's Trace project. Oh, okay. So when they learned what this was, that we have those other distillery elements down there. We have the vats, but yes, but then we also have two other distillery foundations that I'll show you in a minute. Um, that's whenever they decided to, to leave this open. Open excavation, open air museum. There's not really another distillery that has anything like this. Most of the time, this stuff doesn't exist, period. Because yeah. when you're building a building like this, you like a clean foundation, not really any rubble that you're building on, right? But here, there was an element of speed. Like the building that preceded this burned down in a, like a freak lightning storm accident, and they rebuilt this whole thing around us in a year. And so, as they're cleaning it off, they just got to a place where it was pretty stable. They're like, this is good enough. And there were still remnants of that foundation underneath there. And that's what we found last year. So, and then there's some other elements here, like these pieces of glass are from a skylight that um, there were pictures of, but everybody thought was made up because there's no skylight anywhere else in this distillery at all. But we actually located the room where the skylight would have been, which is farther back in the distillery as well as part of this project. So it's cool because it was like people have known this place existed for their entire careers, right? They didn't know anything was underneath it, but the archaeology helped people kind of slow down and look. And now they get 200,000 plus visitors through here a year, and a lot of them want to see this site. So it's a very cool way of being like, this is how archaeology can talk about distilleries and how you can bridge into other topics as well. Yeah. That's cool. That's very cool. After showing us some of the artifacts collected from the Bourbon Pompeii site, we watched a fairly well-produced video that set the stage for the site itself, the very place we were standing. I didn't include audio from that video in this podcast out of respect for the intellectual property of Buffalo Trace. That, and it just didn't sound very good coming through the uh, portable microphone I was using. But here's a quick rundown on what we saw. We were standing in a fairly large building that looked like a warehouse. The foundations, at least most of the foundations we could see, were cut limestone blocks, and the walls were brick. Spanning most of the floor of the warehouse were several large rectangular holes in a brick and cement enclosure, with a massive open area beside them that spread out toward the foundation and the exterior walls. This open area is where most of the magic happened. As Nick explains, he revealed several construction phases, getting back to the forgotten origins of the distillery. We found some exaggerations in the artist's uh, rendering. Um, And then it's also read by his uh, great-great-grandson. So it's all like, you know, connected with the family, which is just awesome. So um, artifact-wise, we only found one of these. It's some of the copper piping uh, meant to get the the beer out of the fermenting vats and move it on to the actual distillery, um, the actual stills. And then um, we only found two, three, maybe three domestic artifacts. 
So uh, whenever you're looking at these things archaeologically, right, you have um, industrial, they have something to do with whiskey making or the building itself, right? But those have to do with uh, somebody having supper. Uh, you have a little bit of cooked bone, the plates they're eating their meals off of. And uh, if you have something where somebody's living, a domestic rest uh, residence, you have a lot more of this. So it makes sense that we're only finding like one or two pieces. Maybe there was something here before the distillery and it just got wiped away. Or in the case of the bone, we think that a dog might have like drug it underneath the distillery or something and had lunch and just left it. So um, very, very interesting in the types of artifacts that we were finding. So um, questions so far? Uh, this is part of what you excavated, this ram type? Yeah. Or, uh, yeah. And, and what, what is, is that like a... It's a special made brick uh, that would go into um, the boilers. Uh, oh, okay. It would actually go into a metal part there, and it's okay. replaceable oh, as okay. it completely reduces. And there's other um, special made bricks. But um, for the most part, the bricks were all more or less one order. So in the 1883, whenever all this was made around us, they probably placed one huge order to get all the bricks they needed. So for the most part, the bricks that we dug out of the actual fermenting vats were all the same type. So they looked like they were machine made in the mold. Um, we found others that were outside of the fermenting vats from like earlier stages of the distillery that were handmade. You can actually see like thumbprints in some of the brick. But it makes sense that most of the stuff associated with what's around us is the same type. So where in the history of all of this, all of the events in this facility, do the flood deposits come in? You had mentioned that there were some flood deposits in there. Yeah, yeah. What's the story with that? Was this building overcome by flood at some point? Constantly, like um, every 10, 15 years or so it floods. I think the last big flood was uh, maybe 10 or 11 years ago, and uh, it gets up to just about where we're standing wow. right now. So most of that room, um, whenever the exhibit was being designed, it was actually keeping the flood in mind. All the d displays can be removed, the TV removed, and there's holes drilled in the walls and places for the floodwaters to go out. Um, but as far as the silt goes, it varies in thickness. We found some thin deposits, some thicker ones. The really intact ones that we saw archaeologically were within that um, 73 distillery. It looked like not much had been disturbed there, and it flooded. There was a, an inch thick, uh, inch and a half thick deposits with um, uh, like other artifacts just kind of in between. So it doesn't really make sense why they wouldn't like dig it all away. Instead, it looks like they just started working on top of it. So it might be looking at some sort of subfloor, but it's not really clear. That's something about this is like, even though we have all of this up and we're talking about it, there's still a lot to learn about what actually happened here, going back into that excavation data and the archives themselves, which is fun. Um, still a lot to learn. But um, up there is what it actually looked like uh, to kind of get a picture of what yeah. that distillery uh, like kind of in place. So the footprint is almost as big as what we see today because all the way on the left side there is uh, Warehouse C and we parked right behind that, walked by that as we came in. But you can see other elements like the fountain there in the center of uh, the drawing. It doesn't exist right now. And for a little bit, everybody is like, well, that's completely made up anyway. But since we found so <laughs> many elements of this that are in actuality existing, maybe there was a fountain at some point. Uh, maybe we'll find that in years to come. I don't know. 
Is that a current picture or is that an old picture that was left there? That's a, um, oh, that is a new, the actual picture is new, um, but the drawing itself uh, came out of that book. So that oh, 1883 okay. book, okay. Um, the building that's all the way in the top middle is what we're standing in now. Oh, okay. You can see the river kind of behind it. Oh yeah. And that's what the OFC distillery looked like before it was modified and whatnot. Um, so in the video, they mentioned a spring that is somewhere nearby, like perhaps under us? It's uh, just outside the building. We can okay. actually see part of it. Do, so. do the uh, spring waters still get used? Right now, they pull uh, water from the river for the most part and uh, put it through osmosis and other things. I'm not clear on how that part works. But the sound that um, keeps on coming on every two, three minutes, that's the water being pumped through that large pipe there and going into the rest of the distillery from the river uh, being pumped out that way. Yeah, uh, cool. Yeah. The map here, uh, before we get down into it, you can actually see the uh, stages. So we're standing here, and the um, 1873 distillery is this wall right here. We came in a second ago right this way. Okay. And then um, the 1869 wall is here. You can see how it's interrupted by the actual vats. Everything in green here is what was built in 1883. All right. So you guys want to go down? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, the green was um, compacted up above us. That's where it started the processing in those barrels on the floor just above us. The river is where you get those barrels and they start shipping down the market. So I guess the green, it might have came in through land. There was a train that came right there on that side, the land side of the distillery, and then the river is where they're getting it off the market. So um, with the bats, you could actually see uh, I always called it like a tooth to the to the mortar. You see kind of that speckling on the wall there. Um, in Taylor's description, he says that it was made of brick, then you have Portland cement, then you have English cement, and they interact with water in different ways, which is why I guess he's using the two different types. But um, the actual copper sheeting, they put mortar on the back of that, and then they just glue it up against what you could see there. And I guess it was loose enough that you, they could have just jerked it off whenever it was uh, time to, to salvage and sell all of that copper. But um, again, these walls here came up to about this height, another three, four feet up. There would have been some stairs from about where we're standing to get up on the edge of it. And then a lot of what you can't see is there was a whole bunch of infrastructure above us with that steam, um, the pumping to get all the fermenting um, beer out of these things and to the actual still. So uh, there's remnants of it. You can see that kind of eye bolt there uh -huh. uh, hanging down. So there's little bits and pieces of it that are still here, but for the most part, when the sprinkler system was installed, when these other things were installed, they're maybe reusing some of that. They're like, oh, we need this little joint here. Let's use that for whatever the new thing is we're doing. Um, but yeah, so keep in mind there's a lot that you can't actually see. We're only seeing part of the infrastructure here. Something else that's cool is you see the bucket there and the kind of the sump pump well. Um, the actual well itself, there's one in every one of these vats, and that must have been where they put that um, the kind of suction tube to get everything out, the deepest point of every vat, and there's like a little um, dimple in that copper sheeting. So that's historic. Those um, round holes that are in the bottom there, that's part of the, uh, the flood preparation I mentioned. Those are modern. 
and oh, okay. uh, ideally whenever this thing is underwater all the water will go out that way and you'll just be left with silt in here depending on how bad of a flood it is they had that there was a drainage system where for whatever they were distilling right there with the buckets in. i mean that way they could absolutely absolutely empty everything out of the bucket. yep and after every single run, after um, because this, there was no heat or anything to it. It's just combining that processed grain and the water, letting it sit for however long it takes for the, the uh, fermentation to, to cease. So these things are going to be bubbling and whatnot, but there's not actually heat added to them. And then you drain it all with that. And then workers would get in here and scrub it all to, like he called it, a, a very mirror-like polish in order to keep it all clean and ready for the next um, batch to be fermented. Now, was it, was it a solid piece of copper, or was the copper joined in sheets? I imagine it had to be joined in sheets. I don't know if the technology existed to make copper sheet this big right. um, at that time, but I don't know the logistics of how that worked. We're actually going to figure that out in the next year or so, because this one here is going to be reactivated. They're going to rebuild it, mine it in copper. We're going to start actually distilling the way that old Taylor was um, in the late 1800s here. So um, that's going to be interesting to see. Like, we think we know how it works, <laughs> but like, what are the logistical problems in yeah. actually making it work? That's a really so. cool example of like experimental archaeology where you're using, you know, archival mm -hmm. and archaeological information to bring bourbon back so how long will it take to have some drinkable experimental bourbon from that well the bourbon's gonna sit a while we can have the white dog pretty quickly yeah. but uh however long it's aging we might be looking at three four years before we have something that is close to what he was making nice. i don't know if we know exactly how long he was aging it um but we'll know soon i imagine so let's go look at the spring here you can see it out the window well if the river's not too high, you can see it out the window. <laughs> oh, perfect. So you see the little arch of stone down there? That's yes. That's what's left of what's in that picture there behind you. Um, that little metal piece there is probably whatever the building is that's behind the spring in that archival photo. So uh, we're going to start uncovering that probably in the next year or so as well, see what's left there. Because in this photo, you can see there's like stairs going down to it and whatnot. And some of the workers have said they, they found pieces of those stairs. But it'd be interesting just to see like what is exactly there, especially considering that that goes underwater so often here. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's walk and see the rest of the foundations here. And then we can wander around and see like whatever catches your attention. Yeah. <clears throat> So these stones in here, you see all these different piers. We actually don't know um, what these things are. They were intact, but we can't connect them to something in the archival documents. They could either, they, they obviously predate this building, but they could be something that was used in the maintenance of these uh, columns and whatnot, or they could be something associated with the earlier distilleries. So there's something in the um, 1873 archival photo that, or, or lithograph that shows something that looks almost like a spring house in this area. And when we were digging down, we found uh, like a three or four foot, it wasn't a void, it was just really loosely packed soil, nothing in it at all, but it went considerably deeper than everything around it. And it could be some sort of spring house, some sort of like just kind of 
we're trying to keep the barrels uh, cold for some reason. As in the lithograph, you can actually see people rolling barrels like kind of that direction out of whatever the structure is here. Um, so we're leaving these in place so they serve as a good uh, kind of discussion tool to where it's like, no, we don't know exactly what everything is here, but we can try to figure it out through various lines of evidence. Also here, you can see that with the columns, some of the materials are different, yeah. and that could be somebody's more comfortable with working with brick, somebody else is more comfortable with working with stone and mortar. Um, not entirely sure if what we're seeing is like different time periods, different craftsmen, what exactly is going on here. But the actual columns themselves, for the most part, are the same as what you see in that lithograph, with the exception of ones like this, where they decided they need a, needed a piping cage. So these things actually had uh, bars running between them here and pipes leaning up against them as they used it for storage in the late 1900s. So this piece right here is the 1869 distillery. This is the actual lithograph of that building, but that was what was here when Colonel Taylor came and, and purchased the area. I think it was called the Swigert Distillery. And it may have been operating here for basically as long as there were um, uh, European settlers here. Um, we actually found something that looked like a door threshold in that gap down there. Uh -huh. And so we're fairly confident that the pieces circled here. If you're standing in that gap, that's exactly where you are. You can see uh, a little bit of that spring still down in that area, the trail leading down to it. There's a little bit of exaggeration in, you know, how high this river is, because here it looks considerably lower. There's another lithograph that looks like the river's like right up on the edge of the distillery. So it's interesting seeing how the artistic renderings match or don't match with reality. Yeah. But um, it's just awesome that we're able to actually say with confidence that this is part of that earliest distillery here. And um, it's also useful to talk about how you see things overlapping, you're able to put rough dates. As you can say that these vats that we know were dated to 1883 interrupted this feature. So we know this feature predates 1883. And uh, people, it just seems to click as we're talking with visitors on how we date these things with some sort of confidence, how it's all based in evidence rather than us making up a story. This one is interesting, as this is the 1873 distillery. This is the one that was struck by lightning and burnt down after about <laughs> 10 years or so, which I still can't quite wrap my head around how something stone and brick burns down so quickly. Right. But it did. So uh, you can see how the, the dock here, the river, looks like it's much higher now um, than in that previous lithograph. But here I was having a conversation, and people were asking me, like, we want to be able to put a solid date to this stuff, say that it was made exactly this year. And it's like, well, unless we dig down and we find, like, somebody's initials with, like, 1880 in them or whatever, I don't know if we're going to be able to do that. And the next week, we dug down, we found the corner of this foundation here, and you can see the detail where that uh, it juts out about an inch or so and kind of makes that kind of decorative element on the corner here. Yeah. And that matches exactly with this decorative element that you see here in the lithograph. So it's like, well, it doesn't get much better than that. So this is definitely the 1873 wall. And you can tell also that it's an exterior wall because um, below us, there are raised mortar joints, the same as what you see on uh, Warehouse C. And it's uh, very finely chiseled. So we were always working with the assumption that 
okay, this is some sort of exterior wall, but why is it in the middle of the building? And that detail helped us put the, the puzzle together. Gotcha. So everything else was then built outside of it. Yeah. And kind of closing it in. Yeah, exactly. So the 1883, like I mentioned earlier, they built rebuilt with that speed, right? Yeah. So here, all those intact flood deposits were on the inside of this building, and it really must have been that um, this was something that had to be filled in to get it compact, ready for construction, and all of this was compact enough, and so all of this ended up just being buried over time. You can see these walls here that back right up against that 73 foundation. They actually played a, like a structural function. They're called backing walls for that um, 1883 wall there. We'll go up and look in a second. So they were definitely using this foundation. And over here, um, ironically, is the closest to the present, but we know the least about it. The drop tub here, and there was a, a big cooling trough that ran down the center of the room have no idea when exactly they were installed. Sometime in the early 1900s, they're part of what was ripped out in the 1950s, and they show up in a 1942 piping diagram, but we don't know when they were installed. But you can actually see that what they did for the drop tub was they just dug a hole through all the rubble that was here in the floor. You got brick, you got stone on the outside of this wall. They just put a single course of brick inside and lined it with plaster to make it waterproof. And as the spent mash is cooling, coming this way, it just drops in there and then it moves on to the next stage, whether it was just put outside into the river at one time or it was dried and fed to cattle. We don't know exactly. Huh. It kind of probably varies over time. Yeah. But then you also have those <clears throat> brick supports there in the middle. Was there something sitting down inside this at one time, like maybe a big metal tub at some point? Um, again, we don't have a clue, and the archival documents for that period in time don't seem to exist, but um, maybe they'll turn up at some point. It's also cool because that middle part there, against this, the very edge of the drop tub, it's that 1873 foundation. They just plastered around it, and then they kind of supported a little bit with some of this brick and stuff, but at the bottom, there's still some of that, that stone from that early foundation. And we actually found a little bit of it going that way as well. So it's like layers of that distillery just kind of consuming what came before it, which is, is fun. Yeah. And it's much easier to talk about these concepts when you're standing standing in the middle of it, you know? And right. like, you know, get you can that point, point at it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's like <laughs> you can see people's eyes, it just clicks sometimes. So um, there's a video here where you can actually see the construction and process as well. And then this lithograph here is interesting because uh, this shows the actual distilling, the fermenting floor. Um, more or less, we're standing right in this area, looking that direction. And um, we have vats eight through four, three, two, and one would have been kind of on the other side of this wall. And there were coal boilers that were put in there at a, a later time, and they just dug through all of this. They didn't realize, you know, there wasn't a point in keeping it at the time. You can also see all that infrastructure I was talking about earlier. They just don't have the, the pipe that would have gone down into it yet. Well, I guess it's right here. As Nick played another video for us in the interpretive exhibit, I thought to myself how well his work and what we got to see of it at the end as we walked around the site shows off the full process of archaeological research. Nick used excavation, archival research, oral histories, and comparative analysis 
to piece together a story that had evaded Buffalo Trace for almost a century, maybe longer. I also started to see the building, the original OFC distillery, almost as a living thing that had evolved throughout its life. We took a step outside on an observation deck in the sub-zero cold to see how the history of this building grew. It was really cool to see it all from the inside, and then see the same processes echoed outside. As Nick said before, there's still so much to learn here. <laughs> Let's go check out the outside here. Oh, a little icy. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> That's cool. So anyways, not here anymore. So you can see the outside. There's a little bit of uh, slumpage there, where the oh, bricks yeah. kind of coming out. So you can kind of see like what was happening to the wall here, and the actual buttresses on the outside. The lithographs show like one, so it's possible that as the slumping was happening, they kept on adding buttresses to try to keep it up and out of the river. But uh, it's just fascinating to see they repointed the entire outside of this. And the stonemasons, as they're actually working here, they're talking about how some of the stone didn't make sense to use in the building of this type. Like, it was too expensive, especially some of the nice white stuff they called Kentucky marble. And some of that is probably recycling of that old building, all that stone that came down, and they're just working it into this. But they actually researched, uh, like, historic mortaring techniques as well. As you notice in that video, they're pounding the mortar in and stuff, and that's not how you would do it normally. So uh, even the outside, to try to get as historically accurate as possible. It's just fun. Yeah. Oh, so one of those out here. So <laughs> <good>. Yeah. <laughs> one of those lithographs shows a uh, a riverboat coming like right up to the facility here. Yeah. Is that artistic imagination, or did they actually use boats to traffic barrels up and down the river? They definitely used the boats. Now, uh, I think there might have been a ramp or something involved that's not really shown in those pictures, but there's remnants of that stone dock that goes out from the 73 distillery, and yeah. it would have been basically below where we're standing today. But there's so much erosion here from the river, I don't know if there's anything really left of it that's intact yeah. anymore. Also, I mean, looking at where the river is now, I mean, it would have had to come up nearly a story or so I would imagine because it's not like putting a lock in changed the elevation of the river or anything like that yeah so, it's something that we'll learn more about as we start to look closer at the outside of this I imagine <laughs> all right let's go inside here. and one of the engineers that was working on the project is telling me that the the purpose of them is for this exterior wall some of the the weight to be taken off of it and distributed like into the actual building so ideally the backing wall and the exterior wall should be flush against each other but you can see where it's subsiding into the river there yeah. where it can pretty much fit in between the backing wall and that so it's not supposed to be that way <laughs> but um the concrete too um I was actually surprised at how many people were confused about this we didn't dig down to the concrete we dug down to sterile subsoil just river sand the concrete's put there to help stabilize the building, but also help whenever it floods that the water's going to go out through these weep holes in the sides. The actual concrete itself is uh, put around the different features that were still sticking out of the subsoil. So this uh, concrete here that was left over from some sort of maintenance event 
a few of the um, lower foundations on that side have concrete around them rather than over. And then you can see interesting things here, like you see that twisted column there? Yeah. Not entirely sure if that represents somebody that maybe wasn't exactly trained in bricklaying and <laughs> maybe it was their first day or something, <laughs> yeah. or if something else happened there. But uh, something like that serves as a hook to start talking about like uh, labor relations, like what craftsmen are like, the type of people that were actually working in this building. So there's a lot of places here that you can get into talking about craft and labor, or you can even start talking about, uh, say, religious issues if you start talking about taxes and temperance movement and all of that. Yeah. So it's a, a fun place to really go into discussions about nearly any aspect of the distillery industry. Some of the flooding pictures are over here in this display we haven't got to yet. <laughs> you can see uh, this is the building that we're in here. And um, one of the floods, I'm not sure which flood this one is, but you can see it's all up on the other side there. It's all behind us. The parking lot um, is in this area. So uh, <laughs> what the visitor center is today is over in this area. So you can see how much the, the flooding just kind of takes over this area. And then again, you have an older picture with a steamboat kind of up high here. So. And that's the building that we're in back there? Yep, back behind us. This is part of the lock here that you can kind of see in the distance back that way. Gotcha. Yeah. So uh, this is it. This is, uh, this is the Bourbon Pompeii. <laughs> I don't know. That's awesome. Yeah. Any I other questions or anything? I mean. Um, with so like with it flooding so much, how does the distillery kind of cope with that? Like it seems like it's it's normal enough, but they've never fully abandoned the site. No, um, not really a reason to. I, I don't believe, as I think they have their warehouses high enough to where uh, the barrels aren't really affected as much, um, or if they are, the loss is kind of minimal. Okay. But um, the infrastructure here is just so there's so much to it it wouldn't make sense to abandon now, especially since it happens kind of infrequently. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know, 15 years or so seems frequent enough to be a problem, but it's not like it uh, breaks the business as I understand it. Gotcha. I guess we'll see whenever I have the first flood here and I can help, you know, come <laughs> and clean up things. Yeah. My opinion might change then. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> that much flooding, it, then you were talking about the, the, the soft floor that before you put the concrete I, I'm, it's really kind of surprising that the building's still standing because you know the erosion that you would have going back out over all, all those years of flooding yeah yeah well, which, which to me i mean that might be what that is right there you know maybe it eroded that shifted and they couldn't quite get it turned around so they could be jacked it up as well as they could and i mean, yeah. I mean it looks like they put a little mortar or something around it trying to hold it in place well keep it in mind too that that was buried up until last year so you can yeah. see where it's eroding outside this building but as far as um, the inside that we're standing in today the water would come in maybe through the windows and then go out through the doorways windows wow. drain pipes whatever there used to be a gutter on the side of this room when they were cleaning it but uh, as far as the erosion it's limited to what's outside the wall here so as far as um, <clears throat> I did have a question about the the kind of 
what it was like working on the the Bourbon Pompeii site. So you were <laughs> you were the only archaeologist on on hand, right? Yeah. And but you you had mentioned there were workers here, but they were construction workers. Yeah, they were part of um, just the construction workers that were going to turn this into a reception space. Okay. So uh, when I first got here, there was a bobcat sitting kind of in front of us here on what was the floor then. And they were busy just getting all that fill out, and they were going to put clean fill in once they were done repointing all of this. And um, whenever Buffalo Trace realized what they had here, and because they put such a high value on preservation, they didn't have to do any of this. There's no like 106 hook, no federal money involved, yeah. nothing. They could have just covered it right back over. Um, but we worked something out to where they were digging at a rate to where if I came in once or twice a day, uh, and checked in on the construction crew, looked at what they were finding, what kind of deposits they were in. If we hit something interesting, like we had six different profiles where I um, spent a weekend uh, cleaning, drawing stuff to figure out, okay, is this stuff important or is it documented enough to where we can go on and dig it away? Yeah. Um, we were able to kind of figure out that kind of compromise. Um, and it worked out well. I think if it had been a different type of site where you didn't have these just major industrial fill episodes where they're just getting a whole bunch of clean fill with random bricks and stone and whatever mixed in if there were actually like stratified deposits throughout this whole building yeah. i don't think it would have been possible that way but there was really only one or two pockets where you could actually see like good and stack intact stratigraphy and after we got those sampled we were able to go on and move so uh it worked out well but i mean in, in addition to that construction crew the architects that were involved, both the architect and the engineering crew, they had to come up with something different because this catwalk system that we're on, all of the, the void that we made here, where we took out all this dirt and we didn't replace it, it caused stress on the building. And oh, so the yeah. catwalk system, you can see it's actually in the walls in certain places. And so all the steel bars are holding the building together. And they just happen to be able to fit a catwalk on top of that system too. So it's uh, it's both interesting from an archaeological standpoint, but also from a like architecture engineering standpoint, yeah. and how the heck mm. you can do this and still not damage the historic fabric. But we are going to have some issues with um, figuring how to deal with stuff like the moisture coming in. You see the fermenting vat there. Yeah, there is a, a gutter coming down because the ground surface is up there, almost even with those windows. Wow. And uh, so there's a gutter somewhere that is still emptying into um, these vats just a little bit. And so um, not entirely sure what to do about that, but it's just part of the continuing maintenance that uh, Buffalo Trace is committed to with this project. Yeah. Which is uh, it's awesome. I can't wait to see more distilleries kind of follow in their footsteps. Yeah. Um, did you have to train the construction workers on like archeological methods and, and uh all that not too much because um for the most part what we would do is like like this area right in front of us they would dig straight down and um we'd have an idea of if there were layers or whatnot and we had one of those guys that he could you know remove he could probably open a beer can with his backhoe he was just that good with it you know so if i told him you know get down to this level when i came back it was at that level and just like perfect so uh, if we'd had different people on the crew, maybe it wouldn't have worked out that well. Yeah. But we also, because of the logistics of getting all the fill out of this building, it more or less had to be hand-sorted. So it'd be like, all right, this is the area. We already know what the deposits are like. And as we were starting to, to excavate it, 
here are all the things that came out of it. The stone, the random metal, there's maybe a few artifacts in there, um, the brick, whatnot. And so I would go through that and then bag it as like, these artifacts came from between this depth and this depth in this area. Nice. But uh, fortunately, we had a lot of, um, I mean, you'd call it uh, unidentified metal in any other project, most likely. But uh, here, because we know a little bit about what was above us hanging from the ceiling and these other things, we could say, like, this is probably metal from, like, these components that just fell down or were garbage and they were just used to fill the holes or whatever at the time. Mm -hmm. um, fortunately, not a lot of, uh, like, de domestic deposits, something like that, that might have needed, like, a, a little bit more uh, delicate touch, you know? Yeah. So um, it's just very interesting. But it's also kind of the way these sites work, uh, distillery sites in general. It's, a, um, I guess, kind of similar to urban archaeology, where you got, like, these constant overlapping um, just deposits from different construction episodes, right? Only it's contained inside this building. Yeah. And at mm -hmm. every other distillery, well, industrial distillery site that I've worked on, this stuff is all gone. Um, you might have, like, an artifact here or there, but nothing actually intact like these. It's um, the farm distilleries, the moonshine sites. Those are the ones that I found to be more interesting because they're left and everything's just left as the distillers left it when they abandoned the site, right? Yeah. Um, instead of the kind of complete overriding of the materials that came before. So uh, a little bit lucky with this site, too. I don't know if I got to work on, like, an unlimited amount of distilleries in the future. I don't know if we'd hit anything quite like this. Um, it almost shouldn't exist, so it's kind of lucky that uh, we found it. Yeah. You had mentioned some other questions, like, about uh, religious temperance and labor issues and stuff like that. What are some things that you know about that right now? Or what are some of the questions, more specifically, that you want to follow? Um, it's kind of just, uh, it depends on the audience, whoever I'm talking to at the time, because... Uh, like with temperance stuff in particular, um, it, it's more of not really tied to the site so much as like a general bourbon whiskey history, because even though this industry is so critical to Kentucky's identity in general, right? You got small towns growing up around distilleries, but then you have these religious movements that are like, this stuff is evil. You shouldn't be selling it. You got people like hatcheting barrels and whatnot. Yeah. And then in, in modern times, you still have the uh, the blue laws, the wet, dry counties or moist counties. Um, Grayson County, where I'm from, they actually had a wet, dry vote a few years ago. And the uh, front page of the paper had the courthouse burning in flames because it was going to be uh, uh, introducing the devil to the county if you're allowed to drink alcohol, you know. So uh, <laughs> you have things like that that are good uh, discussion points to show, yes, this stuff was happening in the early 1800s. They used to have best whiskey drinking competitions. So it'd be like a, almost like an apple pie competition at a fair, right? But it was whiskey. And Temper's movement got rid of that in like 1820s or so. Um, and then you have the same thing happening again today. Or depending on where I'm presenting at, um, like nearby in Woodford County, there's a, um, a nun, uh, Sister Mary Gemma, that follows me around. She goes to all my presentations and she heckles me during the presentation. <laughs> it's like talking about how it's an evil liquor or whatever, even though she's really interested in the history. But um, it's, 
interesting. Yeah. yeah. Is it a friendly so, heckle? It's or a more or less friendly heckle. <laughs> she likes my mom because my mom's kind of anti-alcohol. So she's like, your mom's a good person. What happened to you? You know, that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah. But uh, completely not expected whenever I got into this like uh, seven, eight years ago. Yeah. yeah. But um, have a nun chasing you around, <laughs> yelling at you. Yeah. So although she's given me some good tips on where to find moonshine sites at, so um, you know, oh, nice. it's kind of give and take relationship there, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, you have things like that that are kind of general whiskey history. This provides a kind of anchor to get that foundation started, and then um, you have I don't know. You can move into what's going on now with the industry, even though like. The, the label laws, like what it takes to be called a Kentucky straight bourbon and what it is to be bonded bourbon. Some of that I kind of get lost in. I, I leave that for other whiskey historians and whatnot to yeah. deal with. But um, yeah, very interesting. And then here too, we just have a, a, a like a hook to talk about preservation in general too. It's just like we thought we knew all there was to know about certain elements of bourbon history, but nobody knew the site was here. And now through recreating uh, what Colonel Taylor was doing. Hopefully we're going to learn some, some new things. Maybe we've forgotten or maybe he was doing it slightly differently and uh, going to figure out maybe why or maybe something that was lost, you know, that would yeah. be fun to bring back. So we'll see. Plus uh, it's interesting economically, you know, it's like Buffalo Trace stands to you know, make some money off of the product of that experimental archaeology there. Yeah, yeah, and we'll see. I don't know. I hope I'll be able to afford a bottle of it. Maybe it'll be like uh, Pappy, though, and nobody can find it yeah. or afford it when they do find it. But uh, we'll see. Hopefully, there'll be some tasting uh, during the tour here or something. Yeah. That'll be fun to see. It's also hard to imagine because uh, we'll walk by it as we go out, but that drop tub uh, should have been making quite a bit of steam. Um, you can see it kind of boiling up behind that early house as we came in. Yeah. And I'm trying to imagine this room just full of steam like that and uh, having a hard time picturing it but um who knows maybe they had some fans or something built in here and we just don't know about it yeah we'll see but it's it's interesting too because it's like i could bring nearly anybody in here and have a, a completely different conversation um so it's fun to have a jumping off point to go <laughs> nearly anywhere yeah as, really. uh, the distilling industry is at the <laughs> middle of all of those anthropological issues that you get into in school there's almost it's almost impossible not to find a way to talk about some of these things so it's kind of uh, it's kind of nice yeah what's uh what's on deck for future work um next year i've got to finish uh doing some of the reports on the smaller farm distilleries that i'm working on um but eventually we're going to be uh talking about a book I'm not sure if we're talking about coffee table book or something else yet. We'll see. Nice. Yeah. So the story goes, Colonel E.H. Taylor bought an old distillery on the banks of the Kentucky River in what's now Frankfort, Kentucky. He knocked down the original distillery and built a new distillery that, at the time, was the most state-of-the-art distillery in the world. Sadly, it was struck by lightning in a storm and burned to the ground shortly after it was built. It took Colonel Taylor about a decade to rebuild, but this time he expanded the facility. It was later expanded many years later, and over the years, the folks at the Buffalo Trace Distillery lost the memory of where the original distillery site was. 
and the mystery of the distillery's origins intrigued the owners and the staff. So during a recent remodel to convert an old building that served as a water pumping station into an event venue, the construction crews found something interesting and called up the Kentucky Shippo. Nick Laracuente popped over to check it out, and what he found totally changed the distillery's mind. They no longer wanted to build a venue for special events overlooking the Kentucky River. Instead, they gave Nick the time and resources to excavate and conserve the original distillery that would later become Buffalo Trace. It's an impressive archaeological museum that's thought-provoking and breathtaking to walk through. It's open to the public and free, so if you have a chance, go check it out and pick up a bourbon tasting while you're at it. You can follow Nick Laracuente on Twitter with the most coveted username for any archaeologist. It's just at archaeologist. You can follow his volunteer public archaeology program, Bourbon Archaeology, on their blog, Facebook, and Instagram. Thanks for listening to the Go Dig a Hole podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please consider uh, supporting it on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com forward slash go dig a hole. Uh, All of your contributions are incredibly appreciated. And uh, I've already been able to do a lot of amazing things with your support. So thanks again. And please uh, share this with any of your friends, colleagues, classmates, students, teachers, whatever. Uh, You can also find me online. I'm very online. Uh, The blog is godigahole.com. You can find me on all the social media platforms at godigahole.com.